Hi there, and thanks for listening to Batman v. Batuman, a monthly comics podcast with reviews, recommendations, and one recurring segment where I summarize and review a Marvel book in an ongoing attempt to know Marvel half as well as I know DC. But I'll start by reviewing a series outside of the big two that has really impressed me in the four issues released so far. Scrimshaw, published by Alterna Comics, has mostly popped up in comics news for being reprinted in old-school newsprint instead of glossy standard comic paper. Alterna Comics is doing this with a few of its titles, but this series, written by Eric Borden, with art and colors by David Mims, should be on everyone's reading list, regardless of whether you get it for the snazzy paper or pick it up on Comixology like I did. Scrimshaw, which outside of this title means carved or colored designs on bones, ivory, or shells, is a creator-owned original series by Borden. It takes place in the not extremely distant future after erratic weather conditions and climate change result in rising sea levels and catastrophic flooding. The story begins with a summary of our global downfall as some nations survive behind massive seawalls, adapt to new borders, or take to the ocean as massive fleets untethered from their ancestral lands. Millions of people die in the flooding and still more perish as governments, corporations, and pirates fight over dwindling resources. As the dust settles, or ash to use the author's words, the Tanto Corporation of Japan emerges as the most intact and capable survivor of the global troubles. And in this twisted future is where Scrimshaw really begins, introducing us to Hans Tanaka and his associate, the radioactive Daisuke Wakihisa, on their way to an illicit auction at the seedy Kabuki Cowboy Bar in Tokyo. The auction is interrupted by an ambush from the Tanto Corporation. Hans and Daisuke use a combination of technology, futuristic weapons, and good old-fashioned martial arts to fight their way out of an ambush that quickly establishes some of the key players and high stakes of Scrimshaw. The protagonists, such as protagonists exist in this world, are mercenaries operating on a ship called the Runaway Horse. Hans Tanaka leads a crew including the radioactive Daisuke, first mate Mariposa, imposing deckhand Herman, weapons expert and person whose name I doubt I'm saying right Nagari, and Tanaka's wife Katsuko. Together these semi-outlaws hunt sea monsters, dodge the Tento Corporation, make sketchy deals with pirates, and struggle to stay a step ahead of hired assassins. And that's just in the first four issues. The Tanto Corporation has a slogan, Science will be our salvation, a statement to others that their stability serves as a beacon to the rest of a shattered world, that they are the only hope for restoring humanity's place. But in Scrimshaw, there is no salvation. Humanity is drifting towards extinction, and delaying the inevitable doesn't mean much when the inevitable is looming like the rising seas. Tanto and the other remaining corporations and nations are trying to fix something that is beyond broken, because the past is all they know. So while Tanto has their slogan, Hans Tanaka's philosophy better fits the realities of Scrimshaw, as he states that all men are free, they usually choose their cages. Everything, from the characters to the circumstances, is a gray area. One of the main advertisements for this series reads, Cyborgs, Pirates, Cutthroats, and Mercs, and they're the good guys. And if those are the good guys, imagine how nasty the bad guys are. Some characters are actually happy about the floods, and not just the criminals who found new ways to profit on human misery. The Tanto Corporation, for example, used the catastrophe to claw themselves into a position of power in a dying world. But despite the gray areas and anti-heroes, Borden doesn't write a heavy, browbeaten future. Scrimshaw is energetic and fun, regardless or kind of because of the otherwise horrible things going on in this world. He effortlessly cycles through Western, science fiction, dystopian, and martial arts motifs and genre elements without letting their tropes overwhelm or define what he's trying to do here. 
And that also makes this a fun read for pretty much any genre or mainstream comic reader. So that's a review of the series so far and the writing, and now let's get into the art. David Mims is responsible for the penciling and coloring of Scrimshaw, and I loved pretty much every panel of it. I'd never heard of Mims or seen his work prior to Scrimshaw, but his style makes a tremendous impression. It's unique in several ways, the most visually notable being the extra lines he either leaves in from the initial sketches or later adds to characters' faces, backgrounds, and in action sequences that other artists would typically erase or avoid. I'll post a sample of it on Twitter so you can see what I mean. The lines and his striking colors complement the kinetic, visceral style of his penciling in ways that simultaneously feel minimalist and highly detailed. And the effects of that style are tangible as a reader. The angles of a character's face or body show just as much emotion as their faces. And panels featuring a bunch of ships floating are amplified to the same level of intensity as panels where explosives are flying towards a character. While lots of other artists could have brought the world of Scrimshaw to life, Mims draws it in a way that gets under your skin. Uh, so yeah, I'm clearly on board with this series. But if this recommendation hasn't quite sold you yet, perhaps the actual selling price will. Each issue of Scrimshaw costs half as much as a standard DC comic. I got the first four issues on Comixology for six bucks, and you can't even get two Marvel or Image comics for that price. Even if I liked Scrimshaw less than I do, that's still a hell of a deal. As I mentioned, the issues are being printed now, but the physical issues also cost a buck fifty, so if you prefer those to digital, it won't run you any extra. Do yourself a favor and check out Scrimshaw. You'll be supporting independent, creator-owned comics as a bonus to reading one of the most interesting books to come out this year. And it's been a pretty good year for comics. Wonder Woman is two issues into a new arc called Heart of the Amazon under writer Shea Fontana, who succeeded Greg Rucka and his excellent 25-issue run since DC Rebirth. This arc has three issues left to go in a story about a mysterious organization trying to steal Wonder Woman's DNA. After this arc is over, James Robinson will take over writing Wonder Woman, leaving this series as the only AAA DC title to be switching writers at this point, although a couple of series like Trinity have featured guest writers for a couple of issues. Last month I caught up on the six one-shot DC Looney Tunes crossover comics featuring Bugs Bunny and the Legion of Superheroes, Tasmanian Devil and Wonder Woman, Roadrunner and Lobo, Elmer Fudd and Batman, Yosemite Sam and Jonah Hex, and Marvin the Martian and Martian Manhunter. All of them are worth reading, but if you had to prioritize, I'd say Yosemite Sam, Jonah Hex, and Bugs Bunny Legion of Superheroes are less essential. Although, Yosemite Sam Jonah Hex has Foghorn Leghorn in it, and he's one of my all-time favorite fictional characters. Roadrunner and Lobo is the most Looney Tunes-esque of all six books, and it was just great to see Lobo in comics again. Elmer Fudd and Batman was shockingly good. It's a pretty legit gangster revenge story that was also quite amusing. And I love John Jones, the Martian Manhunter, more than most DC characters, so I knew I'd enjoy that crossover regardless of quality. But it was really well done, and writer Steve Orlando got to a weirdly relatable emotional place, considering both characters were Martians. Writer Tom King, who wrote Vision, Omega Men, and Sheriff of Babylon, is currently writing Batman, and wrote the Elmer Fudd Batman crossover, is about to launch a new miniseries called Mr. Miracle with artist and regular collaborator Mitch Jarrods. It features intergalactic and occasionally interdimensional escape artist Mr. Miracle, and looks like it might also be a semi-reintroduction of the new gods, Darkseid and Highfather, to the DC universe. It's not technically part of DC Rebirth, but could serve as a launchpad for those characters to start appearing more regularly. This series is on my pull list, so I'll review it after it gets going. DC is also getting started on a huge event called Metal, 
where mysterious forces are culminating in ways that will shake up everything we know about the DC universe. With Scott Snyder, who wrote a critically acclaimed Batman run a few years ago, and artist Greg Capullo, who drew that Batman run, this looks like it's going to be a pretty exciting series and a nice joint event with Rebirth and Doomsday Clock, which Jeff Johns is writing and will touch on what actually happened in DC Rebirth. Uh, the first issue of Metal comes out really soon, and two setup issues were released last month. Uh, those issues, which were called The Forge and The Casting, were pretty interesting, uh, if a bit lore-heavy for casual readers. So yeah, once Metal gets going, I'll review that along with Mr. Miracle, so keep your eye out for that over my next couple episodes. But beyond the Metal event, there was a big event in real life last month as the San Diego Comic-Con came and went, with tons of announcements and trailers to keep us all entertained in the middle of summer. Justice League had a trailer release that was, frankly, a relief after the previous mediocre trailer. We got our first glimpse of Steppenwolf, the villain of the film, and saw the League in action together, fighting parademons. We also had a panel where Ben Affleck profanely asserted that he will continue to be Batman for the foreseeable future, though with the week-to-week -week uncertainty and flip-flops of the DC Extended Universe, I'll just cross my fingers, hold my breath, and stop speculating about the movies until things are on steadier ground for the more troubled of the big two's cinematic universes. Speaking of which, the Marvel Cinematic Universe continues to roll along with a well-received trailer for Thor Ragnarok, building even more hype for the third film in Marvel's most unnecessary trilogy. The trailer was pretty fun, and I really hope the movie turns out to be good. But I mean, it's a Thor movie. If it's decent, it'll still be the best movie of that trilogy. And the fact that it's a Thor sequel makes me wonder why everyone's so excited for it, considering the prior two films are universally considered to be among the worst Marvel films by those same excited fans. So color me cautiously optimistic, because if Thor 3 ends up being great, the trilogy will pull a reverse Iron Man, and Marvel could use a great movie after a few middling efforts over the past couple years. Anyway, so now, as I always do, I'll end this episode with a summary and review of a Marvel book as I seek to understand the Marvel Universe and be less of a DC partisan. But before I dive into the summary and review, I want to reiterate that while yes, I am going to spoil the hell out of this book, I'm also going to leave out some details, breeze through some complex bits, and not reveal everything that happens. Because while I am summarizing and reviewing this, I want you to check out the book if it sounds interesting to you, and then find new and exciting things while you read it, instead of having every note and nuance spoiled in this summary. So yeah, keep that in mind, and let's get to it. For this episode, I read Craven's Last Hunt, which was six issues long and came out in 1987 across three different Spider-Man titles, Web of Spider-Man, The Amazing Spider-Man, and The Spectacular Spider-Man. Each title had two of the six issues, and all of them were written by J.M. DeMatteis and drawn by Mike Zeck. The story begins with a monologue from Craven, a Russian hunter and supervillain who spent most of his life honing his body and combat skills through unarmed combat with dangerous animals. In fact, within three pages of the first issue, he literally punches a gorilla's head clean off its body. But after decades of hunting vicious predators and tussling with Spider-Man, Craven finds less honor and meaning in his hunts. He finds even less in his fellow man. As he observes Western civilization from his townhouse in New York City, Craven is disgusted by what he perceives to be the absence of pride or dignity in the people of New York. And as his age starts to catch up with him, Craven acknowledges that he will soon start to lose his strength, his speed, and with them, his will to live. Without the thrill of hunting in his prime and unable to reconcile the possibility of life as an average civilian, Craven decides to go on a final hunt for the deadliest game of all. Meanwhile, somewhere else in the city, 
Peter Parker, the Amazing Spider-Man, swings into a memorial service for a petty criminal he had some run-ins with in the past. Editorial note, this is 1987, so Peter's wearing the black Venom-looking symbiote costume he received during the blatant, toy-promoting, overstuffed, and hard-to-read 12-issue Secret Wars event from the mid-80s instead of his typical red and blue outfit. Check out my third episode to hear me review and complain about Secret Wars in more detail if you're interested. Anyway, Spider-Man pays his respects and web-slings his way off, starting to think about his own mortality as he swings around the city. While Peter ponders how being Spider-Man could get him killed, Kraven decides that the deadliest game of all is not man, but Spider-Man. His target in mind, Kraven starts trying to understand his foe as any good hunter might. However, in his case, this involves locking himself in a room with thousands of spiders, letting them crawl all over him, and then devouring them by the handful. Later, as Spider-Man is patrolling the city in the middle of a thunderstorm, he finds himself overwhelmed by morbid thoughts. It gets so bad that his spidey sense kicks in slightly too late when Kraven ambushes him with poison darts. Hallucinating and weakened from the darts, Spider-Man tries to retreat, but he's no match for Kraven as the hunter catches him and traps him with a heavy net. Struggling to break free, our hero doesn't notice Kraven carrying a rifle until it's too late. He pleads with Kraven to put the gun down, to at least fight him hand to hand as they've done so many times before. But Kraven growls that honor will be restored, and shoots Peter Parker from point-blank range. Craven honors his foe by burying him that night, still in his costume. Across the city, Mary Jane Watson is waiting for Peter to arrive at their new apartment and help her unpack. She and Peter had recently gotten married, and his delay starts to worry her. Being married to Spider-Man is scary enough without having to wonder if he's late because he's bleeding out in an alley somewhere or worse. Mary Jane starts to break down as a symbiote-clad Spider-Man climbs through a window at Craven's townhouse. It's the hunter himself who realized that he wasn't content to just get rid of Spider-Man. He now wants to become Spider-Man, to prove himself superior to his buried rival. And it's not enough to wear the costume either. Kraven is still trying to think like a spider, crawling on all fours and drinking mind-expanding potions to help the spider spirit overcome his human instincts. This is obviously a bad idea, and Kraven has some gnarly spider hallucinations that only drive him crazier about proving himself to be a superior Spider-Man to Peter Parker. Kraven leaves his home and goes around New York City hunting for criminals. Meanwhile, Mary Jane is aimlessly wandering, hoping against reason to stumble across her crime-fighting husband. Some jerks start hassling her, and then chase her when she ignores them. They corner her, but before anything happens, Spider-Man arrives to save the day. Mary Jane is overjoyed to see Spider-Man, but realizes that something's wrong when Spider-Man really starts laying into the hooligans. He savagely beats them until she pleads with him to stop. Spider-Man seems surprised and slings away, unaware that he just rescued one of the only people who knows that Peter Parker is Spider-Man. It's too bad eating all of those spiders didn't give him spidey sense. But now Mary Jane is convinced that something happened to Peter and an imposter is going around in his costume. But other than this incident, Craven is quite confident in his crime fighting. It's kind of like hunting after all, and he brutally attacks arms dealers and gangsters, drug smugglers and mercenaries. The police are astonished that dozens of criminals are being hospitalized instead of ensnared in webbing by what used to be the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Yet Craven is still unsatisfied, and still tormented by a sense that he hasn't yet proven himself superior to Peter Parker. His first test of superhuman crime fighting comes in the form of Vermin, a Morlock-looking cannibalistic humanoid underground dweller, or Chud. This chud has been dragging random pedestrians into the sewers and alleys to munch on, and without Spider-Man around, Vermin has been getting bolder in his efforts. 
After days go by without being stopped by Spider-Man, Vermin decides to return to the surface, to the city that found him repulsive and once applauded Spider-Man for driving him into the sewers. I mean, for good reason though, he's literally eating people. So anyway, the re-emerging Chud ends up in the newspapers, and then in Craven's crosshairs. A final hunt within his final hunt. Spider-Man had indeed defeated Vermin before, but he couldn't do it alone. It had taken a team up with Captain America to scare the Chud into the sewers, and Craven uses this knowledge to goad Vermin into facing him as he's passing himself off as Spider-Man, and also to motivate himself, as defeating someone one-on-one -on -one that Spider-Man couldn't would be the final marker in proving himself superior to Peter Parker. So Craven tracks down Vermin, and it's a pretty even fight. Vermin is extremely fast and strong. He gouges chunks of Craven's costume and flesh before the hunter manages to knock the chud off balance. Once Vermin is on the ground, Craven relentlessly pummels him into unconsciousness. But this is Craven, not Peter, so he keeps pummeling until Vermin is nearly dead. The battle won, Craven picks up Vermin and carries him out of the sewer. Then, we are in a dream. A naked man, floating in white nothingness, basking in the peacefulness of the void. He feels warm and safe, but slowly senses that something isn't right. The dream starts twisting into a nightmare and becomes darker. The name Mary Jane and thoughts of spiders torment him until he's jolted into semi-consciousness. That's right, Peter Parker is alive because heroes never die. And also because Craven shot him with more poison darts, not a bullet. Peter is weak and hallucinating, unsure if he's a spider or a man, unable to tell if he's in a coffin or a cave. He crawls through a dark passage and fights a giant spider as himself, a man without the abilities that made him Spider-Man. He then crawls out of a giant spider's corpse. All metaphorically, of course, he's totally still trapped in the coffin. Peter starts having flashbacks to the night that Craven shot him, hallucinating Craven shooting him over and over again. But the thought of Mary Jane anchors him, and he finally forces his way out of the coffin and emerges from the dirt, reborn. Peter, still in the costume he was buried in, realizes that Craven never meant to kill him, which is a very minor silver lining. He stumbles to Craven's townhouse and finds a newspaper, the date of which indicates that he's been buried for about two weeks. Still weak, but fueled by rage, Peter trashes Craven's place and heads home to his wife. She's relieved to see him, and he tries to rest, but he keeps thinking of the grave and reliving his poisoned nightmares. Despite his condition and trauma, Peter knows that he has to reclaim his place as Spider-Man and stop Craven before things get even further out of hand. He leaves Mary Jane in their apartment and goes out on the hunt. His spidey sense immediately tingles and Peter finds Craven in a random building. Spider-Man attacks the hunter, but after a few punches he stops as Craven doesn't resist or flee. Craven actually laughs at him, gloating that he has already won, already proven himself to be a better Spider-Man. So, the hunter removes his Spider-Man costume and puts on his normal clothes, then asks Peter to follow him to the building's basement. The disoriented hero does so, his hesitation and confusion adding to Craven's sense of victory. In the basement of the building that they're in, the hunter shows Spider-Man his great prize, the imprisoned Vermin. Spider-Man had sort of beaten Vermin once, but Craven had actually vanquished the beast. Spider-Man doesn't see it that way though, and he's infuriated to see even a deadly enemy treated this way, so he attacks Craven again. The hunter releases Vermin from his cage and steps back. Since he had fought and captured Vermin in a Spider-Man costume, Craven has the Chud convinced that the real Spider-Man is the one who captured and tortured him. Now, in his regular clothes, Craven watches as Vermin pounces on Peter. 
The Chud starts hammering Spider-Man. Operating below full strength, Peter spends more time trying to convince Vermin that Kraven tricked him rather than trying to fight back. But as motivated as Peter was by his anger against Kraven, it's nowhere near the levels of animalistic rage that Vermin feels towards Spider-Man. The Chud manages to beat Spider-Man to the ground, and only Kraven's intervention saves him from another trip to the cemetery. Kraven releases Vermin back into the sewers and helps Peter to his feet. Even more confused than before, Spider-Man stumbles out of the basement, half carried by his nemesis. Kraven tells Peter he can leave freely and promises that his hunt is complete. He also guarantees that he won't bother Spider-Man again, and even shows a semblance of respect to the web-slinger. Unsure if he can believe Kraven, but too weak to argue, Peter shoots a web and swings out of a window, promising to return and make Kraven face justice. Alone again, Kraven ponders his last hunt, his victories, and his realization that Spider-Man's true strength came from Peter Parker the man, and not the spirit of a spider. With this contest over, and resigned to being Kraven the man instead of Kraven the hunter, the former hunter grabs a rifle, loaded with bullets rather than darts, and takes his own life. And now, Spider-Man is the hunter, crawling through a sewer in pursuit of vermin. The dark tunnels keep giving Peter flashbacks to the trauma of being buried alive, but Spider-Man forces himself to keep going, lest the Chud continue his reign of terror and pedestrian feasting. The still weak Spider-Man barely dodges an ambush by his quarry, and they start fighting for the second time that night. Vermin has better luck against Peter than he did against Kraven, since Peter is physically and mentally drained, unable to even find his footing in the battle against the raging Chud. So, he uses the tactics of a spider and crawls into the darkness to wait for his prey. While Vermin stalks the sewers looking around for him, Peter uses webbing to trap his foe, and again tries to convince him that it was Kraven, not Spider-Man, who was responsible for Vermin's imprisonment. The reminder of being caged and tortured has no calming effect, and Peter is forced to flee as Vermin tears through the webbing. The Chud chases Spider-Man through the sewers and up to the surface, but it's now daytime, and the sun blinds Vermin in the middle of a busy street. He's about to get hit by a truck when Spider-Man swoops down to save him. Our hero drops off the disoriented Chud at a police station, and finally gets to go home to his wife and much-needed rest. Across the city, in a grave next to the one that held Spider-Man for two weeks, Kraven the Hunter is finally laid to rest. Damn, that was an intense Spider-Man story. From what I hear, he's supposed to be a lighthearted and fun character, but between this and the other two Spider-Man stories I've summarized and reviewed, they've all been really heavy. But anyway, I like this one a lot, with a couple of reservations that I'll get to shortly. But first, hats off to J.M. DeMatteis for writing a compelling tale that humanized two of Spider-Man's villains as much as it humanized Spider-Man. Kraven could easily be a goofy character, but his internal monologues, ruminating on civilization and honor, pride and loss, were all really interesting and made the character that much more intimidating of a figure. Kraven's sense of what mattered in life and his acceptance of what it took to win were more nihilistic and extreme than what Peter Parker could ever imagine, and that helped him topple Spider-Man even if it was only for a couple weeks. Demetrius also humanized Vermin in ways that I didn't really touch on in my review, but if you read the story, you'll appreciate why Spider-Man worked so hard to convince Vermin instead of just fighting him. Seeking compassion and humanity from a monster is what made Peter a superior Spider-Man to Kraven, even if it made his crime-fighting life that much harder. I was also surprised at how dark and poetic the writing was, especially those Kraven monologues, because my entire experience with DeMatteis' work up to this point comes from various Justice League titles he wrote in the 90s with his writing partner Keith Giffen, and almost everything they did together was comedic, and I was expecting something similar here. 
but there is literally one joke within the six issues, and as soon as he makes it, Spider-Man regrets it. That heaviness unfortunately hangs over this entire story, and while it's definitely a good dramatic entry into the Spider-Man mythos, there's nothing particularly redeeming or hopeful about Spider-Man that shines through. It's more Zack Snyder Superman than Richard Donner Superman, which seemed to happen a lot in 80s and 90s comics as the industry tried to copy Watchmen and just ended up putting out more grim, depressing stories without the fascinating character studies or genre deconstructions. Since I'm more of a DC guy, I have to point out that in some ways, this story reminded me of the Nightfall storyline in Batman comics published about six years after this, in which Bane famously breaks Batman's back. This and Nightfall both feature a distracted and weakened hero overcome by a physically superior and ruthlessly cunning foe, then struggling to rise again while reassessing why they'd become vigilantes to begin with. The difference is that Bane had more sinister criminal intentions than Craven, and also that DiMatteis did this in six issues, while Nightfall took over a year and dozens of issues to tell a similar story. But that comparison actually leads to one of my reservations. While Spider-Man is reeling from the deaths of a couple of people he knows, including the petty criminal whose memorial service he visits in the beginning of the story, it seemed weird that he would be so heavily affected by those deaths that he couldn't handle or Spidey sense an ambush by Kraven until it was too late. I mean, he just got married too, so it doesn't make a ton of sense that he was in such a dour mood. In Nightfall, Batman goes through several issues of 24-hour crime fighting, lack of sleep, beatings, and psychological warfare from Bane before the villain even reveals himself. Here, Spider-Man's bummed out for about an hour and then suddenly defeated by a villain he's easily beaten before. I guess it kind of works because DiMatteis wisely made this a story about Kraven that features Spider-Man instead of the other way around, but it still felt like too easy of a downfall for plot purposes rather than a true slide into despair for Peter Parker. Mike Zeck did the art for the story and it's competent while also fitting the writing for the most part. It's really atmospheric, if not particularly stylized, that being said, there were some panels that came off unintentionally funny. This isn't really Zek's fault since he was drawing what DiMatteis wrote, but seeing Peter fighting and crawling out of a giant spider, for example, or Craven in a room full of spiders as he jams fistfuls of them into his mouth made me laugh instead of appreciate the deep psychological torment that these characters were experiencing. So yeah, my final takeaway is that this is a good Spider-Man story, if a little depressing for the sake of being depressing, rather than to show how important hope can be in a world of spandex and magic that is Marvel Comics. And although Spider-Man doesn't inspire any smiles in this tale, at least the panels of Kraven eating spiders and punching a gorilla's head off might do the trick. Alright, that does it for this month's episode of Batman v Batuman. If you have any comments, criticisms, or suggestions for my next uninformed Marvel review, let me know on Twitter at BatmanVBatuman. If you like the music, you can check out more like it at seedmole.bandcamp.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time. I am pretentious. I am always right. I am Batuman. <laughs>